You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured. Today, we're speaking with Chrysler worker Alex Wassel and Clark University professor Gary Chasen about two-tier wages at Chrysler and what the recent agreement to end them says about the labor movement today. But first, the news. B&H Photo and Video in New York is kind of more than just a camera store. It's kind of the camera store, as well as the place where all sorts of other electronics equipment comes from, including, full disclosure, the microphones on which we record Belabored. They came from the New York Mega Store, which is kind of famously staffed in the retail store by Orthodox Jews, who are also the owners of the company. But the warehouse workers who package the company's goods out in Brooklyn, which are shipped all over the country, my photography students at Temple University, where I went to grad school, for instance, got a lot of their supplies from B&H, since darkroom supplies are harder and harder to come by. Most of those workers are Latino, many of them are undocumented, and now they are organizing. The allegations that the workers who are being assisted by the Laundry Workers Center and the United Steelworkers Union have made are pretty shocking. Um, Workers say they were never given training to safely operate the equipment they used. Many complain of injuries on the job. They say that they work around fiberglass and asbestos without proper safety equipment. They have complained of breathing problems, commonly getting nosebleeds. One worker complained that a manager threw hot water on him and slapped him. And most egregiously, I mean, this is kind of an egregious list, last year there was a fire outside of the warehouse that sent smoke pouring through the windows, and workers say that at first they were made to stay, their complaints were ignored, and then when they were allowed to evacuate, they were forced to still go through the metal detectors. We've talked about before on this podcast, workers being forced to go through metal detectors on the way out to make sure they're not stealing. Generally not from a flaming warehouse. Generally not from a a flaming warehouse, yeah. So they say it took them about half an hour to get out of the flaming warehouse. Uh, Worker Florencio Salgado told Laura Gottesdien at Al Jazeera, they treat us as if we were animals. So workers at B&H have complained of discrimination before. In 2007, the company paid out $4.3 million to settle a discrimination case that claimed Latino workers were paid less than others and not offered health benefits. Other lawsuits have alleged sex discrimination, racial discrimination. But as the conditions continued, the workers reached out to the Laundry Workers Center, which won a dramatic union campaign at the Hot and Crusty Bakery, and whose work we've covered on this podcast before. The workers have filed a petition with the NLRB for union recognition. The representatives say that more than 80% of the 240 have signed union cards saying they want to join the steel workers. We will keep you updated on whether management decides to voluntarily recognize the union, which seems unlikely, or the results of their election. Or risk further negative exposure. Oh. <laughs> All right, sorry. Um, <laughs> we've been covering digital media newsroom organizing for a while now, and last week the movement just got another notch of victory on its belt with yet another New York City-based news team. It was the folks at Al Jazeera America Digital News. Um, about 50 staffers who had been organizing for weeks trying to dialogue with the management and seek voluntary recognition of their affiliation with the News Guild Um, They ultimately uh, took it to an NLRB election, and an overwhelming majority, not surprisingly, voted for the union. And now the the executives at Al Jazeera America, despite their efforts to uh, resist their initial organizing efforts, now have no choice but to uh, recognize the union as the official collective bargaining unit. And along with that uh, union vote, um, Al Jazeera America, the executives also agreed to back down from an earlier dispute over uh, the inclusion of several uh, digital staffers in the uh, proposed collective bargaining unit. So essentially, now that the secret ballot process is done with, with a vote of 32 to 5, the definitively established union will uh, now prepare to enter uh, negotiations for a full contract. Um, The executives like the executives at Salon, essentially tried to, you know, limit the collective bargaining unit. There was a lot of hemming and hawing in, in, in backroom negotiations, but ultimately none of those claims ended up uh, bearing fruit for them. And Al Jazeera America is joining uh, an esteemed sort of pantheon of uh, digital newsrooms, including Think Progress, Salon, Vice, Gawker, and The Guardian, who have organized either with News Guild or Writers Guild of America East. 
And so far, uh, Al Jazeera America is the only one of those newsrooms that actually went to a full vote. Together, uh, all altogether speaking, um, you know, it's uh, it's still just a tiny sliver of all of digital journalism. But uh, this does mark a notable sort of flurry of victories. And News Guild, which is a division of Communications Workers of America, which is already pretty well established in the traditional print journalism and other forms of journalism with about 26,000 workers, now has about 2,000 digital journalists in its ranks, including uh, staff at In These Times, Newsweek's Daily Beast, Truth and the nation, and they just announced a big uh, $500,000 organizing campaign to expand unionization in digital media with the slogan, Quality Journalism, Quality Jobs. Let's hope so. Stay tuned. So Teach for America has a bad reputation, you could say, among public school teachers and public school advocates. The organization places young college graduates, many of them from elite schools, in temporary teaching positions with only a short spate of training. It was originally founded to combat a perceived teacher shortage, but has since become allied with the broader corporate-backed education reform movement, which, of course, you all know, centers around lessening the power of teachers' unions and demanding accountability, air quotes, accountability, in the form of high-stakes standardized testing. In places like Chicago, where unionized teachers have repeatedly faced layoffs, the city has nonetheless brought in TFA recruits, reinforcing the organization's reputation for being a tool of the union busters. Many of these TFA recruits wind up at charter schools, and that's where things might be changing. A new wave of union drives at charter schools has included TFA teachers in the process, and the charter companies are not real pleased with that. In Detroit, where last spring teachers at the University Prep Charter Network voted to unionize, the bosses tried to argue that the TFA teachers' votes should not be counted, claiming these educators are, quote, not professional employees, but rather, quote, temporary employees who, quote, do not share a community of interest with the other employees. They were, in effect, they're arguing long-term substitute teachers, not full-time teachers. That argument would seem, as many have already pointed out, to sort of undermine Teach for America's own argument that its workers are just as competent after five weeks of training as experienced teachers are with years on the job and tenure protections. As one of the TFA teachers said in response to this argument, making the legal argument that we are not professionals means one of two things. Either Detroit 9090, which is the charter company um, involved here, doesn't respect the work we do with students or they lied to prevent us from organizing a union. The NLRB did not buy that argument and said that the TFA recruits do have the right to join the union just like any other teacher, and then repeated its decision again this week when the charter chain tried to appeal. This decision and the line of argument from the charter companies recalls the struggles of temp workers across the economy, many of whom, as you guys have heard us talk about before, work side by side with regular employees but do not get the same rights and protections. If TFA is actually more of a temp agency for teachers, a way to burn through workers without having to give them real protections because they turn over too quickly, perhaps more of its recruits will turn to unions for support and challenge the framework that sees them as expendable labor. TFA recruits are young. Many of them get into this organization in the first place because they actually believe in schools, and quite a few of them have actually gone on to challenge the organization and even become union leaders themselves, like, for instance, Alex Caputo-Pearl, one of the first generation of TFAers who is now the president of United Teachers Los Angeles, elected in 2014 as part of the union power reform slate. And... On the other side of the world, in the intersection of education and labor, we often think of internships as a form of uh, cheap student labor for American corporations. But if you're in China, your internship might take quite a different form on the assembly lines of the world's electronic supply chains. Uh, The uh, Danish labor watchdog group Danwatch recently released an investigation tracing the connections between students at Chinese vocational schools and universities and the supplier factories of major tech brands such as HB and Dell. They furnish European educational institutions, among other consumer markets, with special tech equipment. These subcontractors in China essentially force students to do drudge work on electronics assembly lines, which then feed into these multinational supply chains, according to Danwatch. So without strong fair procurement obligations, these institutional buyers and universities and offices, according to Danwatch, have no way of overseeing whether or not these students are actually being abused or 
exploited. Exploitative internships are actually quite common, according to the report, because they are imposed on the students as graduation requirements. Sound familiar? Um, this is actually a violation both of Chinese domestic labor law and International Labor Organization Convention and the International Labor Organization Convention on Forced Labor. Not unlike internships in the West, albeit under far more oppressive conditions, generally speaking, um, these students are intimidated into staying with the job uh, as long as they are threatened with being denied their degree if they don't complete their uh, work stints. However, students claim the duties actually have nothing to do with their studies and amount to pure exploitation. They work 10 to 12 hours a day, six days a week for up to five months. Um, they are dramatically underpaid. Um, their overtime hours may amount to as much as 100 hours a month. That is uh, exceeding the regulatory limit of 36 hours per month. And the investigated subcontractor in the report, the Taiwanese multinational company Wistron, along with all of its multinational clients like Dell, HP, and Lenovo, have generally acknowledged Watch's concerns, but they have basically denied that the students were systematically forced to work. They insist that they're doing it because they want to advance their education. Right. So ironically, these tech products end up being used by American and European students, many of them interns themselves here on American campuses, in a strange, student, in a strange circle of student worker exploitation. Now Dan Watch is partnering with fair labor organizations to push European universities to establish fair procurement policies to ensure that social responsibility guidelines extend from one campus to another. So until then, thousands of Chinese students are paying the price for our knowledge economy at the expense of their own education. Back in 2007, when the economy was first cracking up, the United Auto Workers agreed to create a two-tier workforce at the big three American auto manufacturers, Chrysler, Ford, and General Motors. Since then, and since the 2009 bailout of the auto companies by the federal government, which included an effective strike ban, the companies have returned to profitability, but they seem to want to keep the two-tier system. Auto workers at Chrysler are now challenging that system and demanding that the UAW push harder in their current contract negotiations to end it. To discuss this situation, I spoke with Alex Wassel, a 22-year employee of Chrysler FCA at the Warren Stamping Plant outside Detroit. He's a skilled trades worker in the uh, top tier of the two tiers and voted no on the initial proposed agreement that the union brought back, along with over 60% of his colleagues across both tiers. So I guess I want to start with, um, for people who are not familiar with the two-tier wage system at the auto companies, um, can you give us a little bit of background and where were you, how long had you been there, um, and what did you think when it came in? Uh, okay, uh, uh, two-tier started uh, basically in 2007. It was a, a concession to the company, and if people remember back to those days, uh, there was a lot of, uh, it was a economic downturn, and there was a lot of companies hurting. So uh, basically, the union conceded to management to uh, pay uh, new workers uh, roughly half half the pay of a traditional employee, and uh, they, they didn't have the same health care benefits or retiree uh, pension benefits. Mm-hmm. A major concession. Right, yeah. So when that happened, tell me a little bit about like when you were working there and this was happening, what did you think, you know, did you think it was kind of unavoidable because the economy was so bad or how, how did you react when you heard that this was going to be the new deal? Well, I uh, reacted negatively to it. I thought uh, it was a cyclical downturn, which it was, right. and that, uh, that the company would soon be making profits, which uh, they did. Yeah, but unfortunately, the workers affected would still be uh, basically behind the eight ball and living at uh, roughly a, a wage that uh, that didn't allow them any sort of working middle class lifestyle or the, the ability to buy the products they were producing. Right, right, yeah, which was supposedly important to uh, auto manufacturers. So this time around, when negotiations were in progress. Tell me about 
sort of your reaction and the reaction at your plant when the first proposed contract came through? Uh, well, the reaction was uh, almost uniformly negative, uh, right. especially uh, as we had time to go through it. Yeah. It was certainly not the transformational agreement trumpeted in the media. Mm -hmm. It was simply another concession agreement that would uh, keep uh, second-tier uh, workers at, at second-tier pay levels and uh, basically continue on the concessions that we have been living with uh, since 2007. Right. So what were some of the things, I mean, I know that it would keep workers at a low level. I also saw that there were proposals around allowing more temp workers. Um, what were some of the details of it that spurred um, this reaction among the workers? Oh, okay. Well, um, one of the, the biggest uh, uh, detail or admission yeah. was in the 2011 agreement uh, in the highlights used to sell the 2011 agreement. Mm -hmm. There was contract language that uh, there would be a cap on two-tier employees in mm -hmm. the, uh, the Chrysler FCA system. Right. Anything above 25% uh, would be rolled over to uh, uh, top pay at yeah. the end of the agreement in 2015. Right. Now, that didn't happen. <laughs> and there was, a, uh, well, roughly 8,000 employees, I think, would have been affected by that. They would have had an immediate raise. That mm -hmm. went away. Right. And so... Uh, to say people were disappointed would be an understatement. Right. And uh, that was probably one of the primary uh, reasons that the uh, contract was uh, voted down at uh, 65% no rate. Right, yeah. Um, how did the organizing to get to that 65% no rate happen? Well, it was a, a combination of... Uh, People talking uh, to their coworkers. There was also a lot of uh, uh, social media uh, discussion, mm -hmm. and, which was actually phenomenal. phenomenal. Right. And uh, also, there are uh, a number of groups, UAW activists, that uh, took it on upon themselves to inform their coworkers uh, the high points and the low points, mostly the low points in, right. this, in the first tentative agreement. Were there rallies or anything at the plant where you worked? Um, how did the how did the message spread? Um, there w uh, there wasn't uh, any rallies per se at our plant, although uh, uh, I, I believe at the ratification meeting at uh, JNAP, which is Jefferson North plant uh, uh -huh. in Detroit, shortly after the uh, ratification. Uh, inf informational meeting uh, was uh, taking place. It just ended. They they marched down to Solidarity House with picket signs, voicing their displeasure with the uh, yeah with the first tentative agreement. That mm -hmm. was that was uh, an amazing thing, and yeah. uh, I think uh, pretty demonstrative of the feeling of the rank and file. Yeah, and for our listeners who don't know, Solidarity House is the UAW headquarters in Detroit, right? Yeah, it's right on Jefferson Avenue. It was uh, it was uh, right down the street. Yeah, and so after the um, the vote to reject the contract, sort of what happened then? Where are things now? There's another tentative deal, right? Right. Uh, roughly a, a week after the uh, ratification smackdown, as I like <laughs> to call it, the best case transformational uh, first uh, tentative agreement uh, was forgotten about. And the uh, uh, 2.0 version uh, was arrived at, and again, uh, trumpeted by uh, the International Union as, as the richest contract ever, mm -hmm. and and uh, looked upon with a skeptical eye again by the rank and file. Mm -hmm. Is there a vote scheduled for the for the second round? Uh, yes, next week, uh, I believe Monday and Tuesday. Excellent. I mean, sorry, Tuesday and Wednesday. Excellent. Um, well, I'll have to check in with you afterwards to find out how that goes. Um, do you plan on voting yes or no? Will you tell us? Well, I I plan on voting no. Uh, I think it's yeah. still uh, uh, it still uh, sort of invalidates union principles of equal equal pay uh, versus equal work mm -hmm. about uh, treating everybody uh, fairly in a union shop about making sure the uh, Second tier or in, in progression employees get 
uh, treated fairly. And uh, there's a number of other deficiencies in the contract, like no cost of living mm-hmm. and, and other things. The alternative work schedules, which I uh, definitely uh, wanted to see, uh, see addressed. Mm-hmm. The alternative work schedules are, are the like extra long shifts on fewer days, right? Uh, right. Uh, my, uh, at our plant, there's a 3 to 120 uh, system which uh, means you work uh, four days a week, uh, 40 hours uh, a week, 10-hour shifts. Yeah. Um, I, I work on the sea uh, crew, which means I'm on a swing shift, so I work uh, mm-hmm. afternoons, Monday and Tuesdays, from uh, 4 to 2.30 in the morning. Right. And then uh, Friday and Saturdays, I work from 5.30 in the morning to 4 in the afternoon. Uh-huh. Uh, again, long hours and, and, and uh, flopping from days to night schedule right. is very hard on your health, and there's been uh, numerous studies that says it affects you uh, negatively. Yeah, for sure. We all walk, we all walk around like zombies, especially on C-Crew. I bet. So in terms of, of fighting the two-tier structure, you know, there was some expectation that this was being pushed by the auto companies when it came in. I think that it would really undermine solidarity among the union workers that the, you know, higher tier workers would vote to maintain their own benefits at the expense of those below them. But it seems like instead solidarity with the union is at least, you know, making some really good moves towards destroying the two tier system. Um, So what can we learn from how this happened and how it's being fought so strongly right now? First of all, I want to give credit to the International Union for coming back with such a lousy tentative agreement that they they, they brought people together in opposition to a bad contract. Um, but also, I, I, I can't underestimate the, the amount of social media uh, impact on this whole uh, ratification debate. Uh-huh. Uh, in the old in the old days. Uh, it was hard to communicate information between different locals and different parts of the country, yeah. different uh, different people. Well, that's uh, that's pretty much gone away. I mean, networks have been developed now where rank-and-file UAW members uh, can talk to one another, debate uh, the issues, and uh, basically become better informed uh, union members. Right. Yeah, do you do you think that um, this strong response that we will see the end of the two tier structure? Well, the the one thing going for the the second tentative agreement is theoretically uh, at the end of eight years that uh, the two tier uh, wage structure goes away for a lot of people, right. not everybody, <laughs> because uh, they treat. Uh, like Bopar workers and Axel workers differently. They're, they allow uh, now an unlimited amount of temporary uh, work workforce in the plant, which sort of undermines the idea of a union union shop and everybody being treated uh, fairly. Right. But because of the first uh, uh, 65% no vote, at least in theory, in the language of the, of the tentative agreement, Two-tier, in a sense, goes away, right. but it, it also takes uh, a fair amount of trust by the rank and file uh, that in eight years this will happen. See, that's two contract cycles. Right. So at the end of this agreement, you know, everything is in limbo again, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, sometimes the track record on following through uh, with promises are not, uh, not always uh, met. Right. What would you like to see in a contract that would make you vote yes? Okay, uh, that's that's pretty simple. I, I, I think I'd like to see uh, uh, the elimination of, of a tiered workforce within the four years of a uh, contract cycle. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't I don't want to see it spread out to eight, ten, whatever years. I'd like to see uh, uh, the rest restoration of uh, cost of living allowance for all employees.
And uh, I don't know. I, I just I, I, I just got a, a, a feel that the uh, international union and the secondary leadership is in tune with uh, the rank and file and these demands. Mm-hmm. One thing that uh, the UAW did this time around is hire a PR firm to try and sell this agreement, the second tentative agreement. I, I happen to think that uh, good agreements or contracts sell themselves. You don't have to hire, you know, outsiders to, yeah. to polish it up for the membership. So I, I really don't know how uh, the vote will go uh, next week. Uh, I'm getting, I, I get a feeling that'll be a, a, a fairly close vote. And I'm, if I if I put money on it, I'm going to say another no vote. But mm-hmm. I can't speak with authority there. I can only uh, tell you what I feel. And that was Chrysler worker Alex Wassel. And now we're going to hear from Gary Chasen. He's a professor of industrial relations at the Graduate School of Management at Clark University. And he's a longtime observer of the auto workers uh, unions and the UAW specifically and has been watching the two-tier wage system and all the industrial labor relations at Chrysler uh, since the system was instituted. He's going to speak about what the recent agreement says about the state of the union. Briefly explain what just happened at Chrysler with these contract talks and why it's significant that the union is challenging the two-tier arrangement. What happened at Chrysler is um, the union, the United Automobile Workers, tries to establish a pattern in bargaining where they pick a target company, settle with their target company, and then impose a settlement on the other two of the Detroit three automakers, that is on Ford and General Motors in this case. So what they did is they, they tried to get a very strong agreement with the uh, with Fiat Chrysler, but they found out that they hadn't properly communicated what they got to the rank and file, and the rank and file essentially rejected the agreement, saying, go back and get us more. Essentially what uh, the rejection was is, is the membership served notice on the leadership of their union and on their union's bargaining committee to do better in bargaining, to come back with us with a better agreement. And then what will happen is that a better agreement has been gotten. It's been communicated. It's really more of a communication problem than anything else. And the agreement will be uh, ratified. Two-tiered wage settlement is a, is, a, is a type of a concession in bargaining. It's um, the type of a gift back. I mean, the gift back is done by all workers who haven't been hired yet. What happens is that you establish two tiers in bargaining. The union usually agrees to this, and it's usually proposed by management. It occurs in about 20% of bargaining sessions over the last decade or so. And what happens is that there's a lower tier and a higher tier in terms of wages. Both tiers do the same job. It's just that you pay workers much less to, to, uh, to do the same job as a worker who's getting paid more. What it is essentially is that higher paid workers are the present workers who, instead of the whole burden of a wage cut, pass it on to those who haven't been hired yet. And the lower tier essentially says that workers who do the same work can, can get lower pay for doing that work than those who are were there previously. As more workers come in okay, and as higher tier workers retire and leave and get jobs elsewhere, then we find that it, it essentially converts over to everyone being on a lower tier wage. But uh, it builds up a great deal of resentment among workers who see that they're doing the same job as someone else. They're getting paid less than that other person, and they're getting paid less than that other person because that other person agreed to a collective bargaining agreement in which they imposed a lesser settlement on the newly hired workers. So essentially, it's it's looked at by most workers as something that's grossly unfair, because it means that the concept of all workers getting the same wage for doing do the same job is no longer in place, and and workers have agreed to a wage cut, but for the other guy, for the guy who wasn't there yet, rather than agreed to it for themselves. How common is the two-tier wage system, and how common has it been historically, and um, in general? Why have unions so stridently opposed it um, as a matter of solidarity? Well, two-tiered wage systems are referred to about 
a quarter of collective bargaining agreements in the last decade. And in the 1980s, when we had major concession bargaining, probably around 20 or 25 percent of collective bargaining agreements also. Unions tend to resist two-tiered wage systems. Employers ask for them. Okay. Uh, unions will... Two-tiered wage systems are very easy to get into and, and very hard to get out of because essentially what you're doing is you're agreeing to a wage cut for, but for people who haven't been hired yet. Essentially, those who are present members of the union and present employees pass on the cost of the burden of the concessions to, to those who aren't there yet, to newly hired workers. Okay. And as a result, unions reject these because it's like a deferred wage cut, okay. and they, they dislike them very strongly. The membership will tend to accept them rather than have the burden of a wage cut on themselves. Unions realize that it creates two classes of workers, the higher pay class and the lower pay class, both doing the same jobs. And they, they very much are against this because it's difficult to get out of it. I should mention that about two-thirds of two-tiered wage settlements have snapbacks in them in which at the end of the collective agreement, you, refer, you go back to the original wage, original wages without the two-tiered system. Okay, it snaps back to the original one. But uh, what we had in the auto markets was not snapbacks, but rather limits okay, on the number, I think it was a quarter of the workers could not be paid more than they could not be at the lower tier. Okay, and so what we had is, is uh, uh, limitations on the two-tier system. How did the establishment of two-tier several years ago change the dynamics in the UAW's relationship with the automakers? Um, you wrote back then that this was part of a sea change in the union's identity. How so, and how did and did that actually play out the way you thought it would? I think the, the UAW uh, saw a change in the, its role when it agreed to two-tiered wage systems because it took the easy way out, it took the convenient way out, and it reached a settlement, a very tempting settlement to its members and said, those of you who remain at work, and a lot of workers had left because they were buyouts, those who remain at work do not have to bear the burdens of major concessions, but rather will pass that on to new workers. And the, all the, the more senior workers, those who were there, okay, started feeling a little queasy about this because they realized that if they betray their fellow workers and their fellow workers might someday betray them, it created double classes within the union. And the uh, the more senior workers within the union, those who usually had union offices and held power within the organization, were those who were on the higher tier. The new workers who were doing the suffering and were getting paid grossly less okay, were, were uh, on the lower tier. And what we ended up with is situations like in the airlines where a, a pilot might be paid less than a co-pilot because the pilot would be on a lower tier and the the co-pilot would be on a higher tier for his or her job classification. So can you put this in the context of the 2007-2008 um, financial crisis, and how did the uh, auto workers bailout kind of shape the climate around the institution of two-tier? There was tremendous pressure in the automobile industry because of globalization, because of plant relocation. And the, uh, the companies essentially said, uh, we want to make we want major concessions. We want major cost-cutting measures. Okay, and the United Automobile Workers, I think, realistically understood the problems of the industry and the extent to which jobs could be very easily lost. What we have now is the entire globalization of the automobile industry in America. We have many what we call transplant companies, which are companies that have their headquarters overseas. But produced in the United States, we have we have cars that are made in the United States for the export market. We have many companies like Ford and Chrysler, which which are unionized, but produce overseas and are dependent on their high sales overseas to be able to pay their workers well in the United States. There is no such thing as an American-made car. There is no such thing as a as a car made outside of the United States anymore. And what we do is we, we tend to find that even cars that are assembled in the United States are assembled from products that are built elsewhere. And so it's very difficult for the UAW to stop globalization. It's happened. It's, it's occurring. 
And the best they can do is try to cut costs because they know that in, in globalization you are competing to try to protect jobs from low-cost producers overseas. And so when the automakers sort of went hat in hand to D.C. and asked for a bailout in 2009, how did that you know, how did that impact the, the contract? I mean, the what we saw here was the threat of a strike, which would have been the first time since that contract that they would have legally been allowed to strike. So how did that, that moment lead us here, I guess is what I'm asking. Well, what happened is that there was tremendous pressure in negotiations to get better agreements than they were, than the union was willing to give. The union was trying to protect jobs and members wanted to to maximize wages and benefits as best they could at the time. I think you have to put this in context and understand that automobile workers were for many years considered the aristocrats of manufacturing workers. They had the best wages, they had the best employee benefits. And working for a, an automobile company was something that was passed on from family to family, from generation to generation. The good jobs, the entry into the middle class for many American manufacturing workers was through automobile plants. What happened is that this, there was a betrayal of the social contract at work. When, when the automobile producers, the, the Detroit Three, said we can no longer okay, provide stable employment for our members anymore. And as a result, there was uh, substantial threat to their jobs. Uh, jobs were being moved overseas. Okay, the United Automobile Workers was fighting a rear guard action. It was in retreat. And I think many, many workers who are members of the United Automobile Workers have come to accept their union as something that tries to protect jobs and protect wages against the tremendous pressures of global competition rather than to, to innovate in wages and to militantly negotiate for higher and higher wages. Um, and what did that ultimately do to the internal dynamics of the union? I mean, I imagine that it eroded sort of the solidarity within the union. Do you think that now they can recover from that, uh, perhaps with this recent move? Well, I, I think the United Automobile Workers sees itself as a, as a union that is of the past and wants to be a union of the future. It recognizes very much that it has to organize workers outside of the automobile industry. And it's uncertain whether it wants to, to organize workers in production, manufacturing facilities, or if it wants to organize service workers, but it definitely has to grow. And so what we're doing is we're talking about a union which has lost at least two-thirds of its members over the last 20 years and is looking for ways to recoup that lost membership. But by organizing in the service sector, United Automobile Workers, uh, like the Teamsters, will organize anyone in, in any industry. Uh, they they organize uh, research assistants at universities. They organized casino workers in, in, in Las Vegas hotels. Essentially, the automobile workers are no longer really the automobile workers because they don't want to get pigeonholed into a declining industry. And I think they see the automobile industry as a declining industry. That uh, what will happen is that the labor that goes into production will be declining and declining and declining. And that uh, even though the industry may come back, it still is very fragile and it's dependent upon overseas production and sales. It uh, can no longer exist on its own. And so I think the problem with the United Automobile Workers is that there's the old guard, those who see collective bargaining as a way to do things, and collective bargaining as as the, uh, the main activity of the union, and the automobile sector as the primary jurisdiction of the union. And then there's the sector which is uh, which sees growth and talks more about the service sector, education, uh, healthcare services, and so on. And it talks about organizing immigrant workers not through collective bargaining but alternative means of of representation at uh, maybe outside of the workplace. Going forward, then, should we see this latest? Um I guess, ending of two tiers, we know it. Uh, should we see it as a decisive win? That is, does it really change things in terms of the material conditions at the plant and will workers really see 
uh, I guess, an equalization of those two tiers, um, especially when there are all these other factors undermining wages, like outsourcing and um, issues of the cost of living adjustment, et cetera. I think, I think that eventually uh, the present agreement must can only be seen as a transformative agreement. It's a movement from the old concessionary agreement to a new agreement. And I think the new agreement will end the two-tier system and establish fairly good wages for those workers who remain in the automobile industry. The only problem is the automobile industry can no longer be counted on as a, as a sector for employment growth in the United States. And towns that are, are dependent upon auto production and auto sales, like Detroit, are going to see themselves badly hurt. I think that's really the secondary impact that we see. Or for sure, the decline in the automobile production and sales that we saw because of globalization, because of stocking consumer demand during the past recession, not only resulted in membership jobs, or, or I should say jobs lost by union members, but also a decline in the population and decline in the power of cities like Detroit, which were once automobile centers. They're not coming back unless they find other sectors. And I don't think the United Automobile Workers is going to be the powerful central union that it once was. It's going to be a, it's going to be a union. I mean, like the steel workers, but it's not going to be a union that's substantially growing. And when they talk, they'll talk more about their history, what once was, rather than what will be. Um, and and are there specific um, issues that you have with the agreement, or, or problematic features that we should pay attention to in in this present agreement? Well, I think the problem with the present agreement is it wasn't properly sold. Okay. I, it's, still a, it's still a mystery to most workers, and they will reject. Uh, their way of asking for clarification is to reject an agreement and to send their bargaining team back to the table to get something better or clearer. There's, for instance, uh, the reduction in the number of lower-tier workers okay, uh, is, is going to occur over an eight-year period, yet the agreement is only a four-year agreement. And so workers are left wondering, how can we agree to something that's going to happen eight years from now in a four-year agreement? Or is it one of these things that the employer will make it his or her best effort to reach this target, okay? in which case it could be close to meaningless? So I think, I think that the workers are still saying, clarify what you're doing. Okay? Protect us against job losses and protect our wages and eliminate the two-tiered system if you can. And this is what the workers are really saying. And not only do that, but tell us you've done it. Okay. Talk to us. And so the workers are demanding that the attention be paid to them. Over short, the workers don't want to become a junior partner in success for the automobile companies and a senior partner in their failure. They're not, they don't expect to make the major sacrifices when times are good. And at the same time, not really understand what they're getting back when times are, are better. Uh, they don't want to go on strike. They don't want to see job losses, and they feel that the the automobile industry in the United States is right at, right at that corner. It's really ready to turn the corner into a more prosperous times, but it's not quite there yet. They don't want to be seen as ruining the good times for the automobile industry, the recovery, and they also don't want to be seen uh, as hurting their own jobs and their own prospects for decent wages. They'd like the automobile industry to, to come back to where it once was, but they don't know if that's really possible. And um, going forward, uh, do you think this um, uh, this latest agreement at Chrysler means anything for contract talks elsewhere in uh, other unions facing similar issues around collective bargaining? Yes, it does mean something. It, it does mean something. It means a great deal. What it means is that it's possible to work your way out of major concessions that were made in the past concessions that were necessary to save jobs and to, to negotiate with employers to get those concessions back. And it means that if you make concessions, you can help a company turn around. But when the company turns around, it's perfectly legitimate to demand that the concessions be ended and that you recoup your losses. This is what they're doing, and I think it will probably be copied in other industries as well, just a general attitude okay, of, uh, we made concessions, and now we'd like to, to roll back those concessions and get to where we once were. I think that's going to be happening in the airline industry, for instance, where major concessions are often made in other manufacturing sectors as well. And that was Gary Chasen, professor of industrial relations at Clark University. 
You're listening to Belaboured, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it is everyone's favorite part of the podcast, the time when we say, "Arg, I wish I'd written that. So last week, the Obama administration held a White House summit on, quote, worker voice, which was touted as kind of a big deal, even as it came at the same time as the TPP reveal. Hamilton Nolan at Gawker, a leader of their recent successful union drive, attended as part of a millennials panel because apparently we can't have anything these days without wringing our hands about millennials and whether they are properly revolutionary or spoiled brats or good lord enough already. But I digress because Hamilton wrote an excellent piece about the experience. The title sort of says it all. The White House can't win the class war. Which is a useful reminder as we endlessly debate the presidential debates. It can be sort of a grim feeling or an empowering one. I've been a fan of Hamilton's writing for a while, and I think this piece strikes a somewhat different tone than many of his class war stories at Gawker have. This one's kind of personal and evokes the sadness that even the most jaded Hellraiser among us can feel at realizing that there's actually no one at the top who is going to fix things for us. He runs through the day's events, a panel with the labor secretary, a long-winded speech by Vice President Joe Biden, the stories of workers who represent the broad spectrum of the beaten-up former middle class. I kind of can't talk about this piece without sort of reading from it extensively, because it moves from an occasionally snarky tone giving us lovely little details of how Barack Obama rolls up his sleeves, to an unexpected elegy for the once-effective relationship that labor had with the Democratic Party, and with it the entire idea of politics is solution to our problems. Everyone in the room, Hamilton writes, pretty much agreed on the solutions that were necessary, but they're not happening. He writes, quote, if Barack Obama was capable of muscling through the sort of laws that the labor movement and Barack Obama would like to see enacted, he would not have to give labor leaders a summit. He could give them political victories. But that does not seem to be the reality of the moment. So we all got invited to the White House instead to talk about outreach strategies and to hashtag start the convo on labor issues. I did not get the impression that the conversation needed more starting. We all seemed pretty well decided on what we wanted. Left unspoken was the fact that the working class will not be getting what it wants anytime soon. The labor movement looked to Barack Obama to bring about salvation. Barack Obama looked back at them. This is not a situation where you had a nice time, you took some pictures, and then six months from now you're like, what did Obama do, he said at the end of the day. Everyone is supposed to go forth into the world and change it. Not even the White House is powerful enough to make those American middle class dreams come true. No savior will be coming down from Washington to win the class war. So we have to win it ourselves. So I kind of have a sneaking suspicion that I'll be referring back to this piece as this god-awful mess that is the presidential election wears on. And if you were fortunate enough to catch the debate last night, um, you might have been shocked, shocked to hear someone talking about socialism on the debate stage. But alas, it was about two decades ago that um, we were on the cusp of another big election season and nearly 1,500 trade unionists met in Cleveland to found the Labor Party. That's L-A-B-O-R. Yes, a recent piece that uh, was reprinted in Jacobin from New Labor Forum talks about the brief and somewhat tragic history of the U.S. Labor Party um, in the mid-1990s, riding a wave of new energy in the labor movement and also riding a tide of disillusionment with the Democratic Party and neoliberal capitalism. Uh, Union organizers got together and tried to form a grassroots party that could do sustained organizing in communities as well as build power that could be wielded in the election space. Uh, Former uh, Labor Party organizer Mike Dudzik spoke with historian Derek Seidman in this interview about how the Labor Party sprung up out of both a sense of optimism and pessimism at that moment. Um, He says, by the 1990s, a growing number of national leaders began to realize that labor's days were numbered and the old system was collapsing. And so at the same time, there was a reformist push underway within the mainstream labor organizations with uh, the um, New Voices slate uh, taking the reins at the AFL-CIO, widespread 
uh, outrage at NAFTA and a bunch of new energy coming in, and there is a big initiative to massively expand their ranks with uh, you know a million workers a year and all sorts of other um, pretty lofty goals. And they decided to start a party. Um, their general concept was creating social unionism, which they defined as, and I quote uh, Zuzikir, uh, understanding that workers are a class with interests that go beyond a particular bargaining relationship that they may have with an employer. And, quote, that employers are part of a capitalist class which seeks unrestricted hegemonic control in all spheres of society. And with that in mind, they would somehow translate that into an electoral platform. And they formed local chapters. They uh, rallied around a specific you know, ballot referenda and, and issues like single-payer health care. And they formed solidarity ties with workers' parties in uh, elsewhere. Um, they were inspired particularly by examples of workers' parties in Brazil and South Africa that had formed kind of a counterforce to neoliberalism. And they were militant by instilling a class analysis into their concept of electoral democracy. They believed that uh, such a party could become a vehicle for broader mobilization, not just generating votes. They were going for things like universal health care and free education. Unfortunately, the project was pretty doomed, and Dudzik says in, in retrospect, it was premature for us to coalesce into a party formation without an understanding of how we could relate to elections. Looking back, he reflects on contemporary social movements like Occupy, coming back to the idea of building power through concrete means. And he says that this requires a structured set of relationships for working class activists to connect with each other, not just uh, expressions of outrage, though those can obviously be somewhat useful. And he ends with a somewhat somber note. He says, a movement has to have the capacity to mobilize people around particular issues in a disciplined way. And it has to have institutional structures that sustain it through times of quietude. It needs to exist beyond the individual outrage that people feel when they're victimized by the system. And today we are still lacking a labor party, but we could certainly use a voice for labor in the forthcoming elections. Or we could at least, you know, use the candidates to mention unions at all. In yeah, the current that would be anyway. nice. Although I think the Republicans probably mention unions, but not in a way that we would like them to. The um, new code word for union is worker voice, I hear. Well, <laughs> on that note, use your worker voice. You can always email us at uh, belabored at dissentmagazine.org or tweet at us at hashtag belabored. Tell us what you wish the candidates talked about in the debates or what you're really glad they didn't talk about. Tell us about your experience organizing in the media or as an intern or in running from a flaming warehouse or running from a flaming warehouse. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, we'll be back in two weeks. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast for the entire archive of past episodes. Visit DescentMagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.